ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So last week then we began the chapter Babu Qawlillahi Ta'ala Ya ayyuhal rasoolu Ballig ma unzila ilayka min rabbik Wa illam tafa'al Fama ballagta risalatah In this chapter then We began it last week And we were speaking about That uh, statement of Al-Imam Al-Zuhri where he had said من الله الرسالة وعلى رسول الله البلاغ وعلينا التسليم that from Allah is the message is the revelation upon his messenger is to convey it and upon us is to submit to it those are words that clarify very clearly the role or the responsibility that we have and that the messengers had. The revelation came from Allah. The responsibility of the messengers was to convey it. Our responsibility is to submit to it, to surrender to that and to be obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon it. Then there was the ayah also, لِيَعْلَمَ أَنْ قَدْ أَبْلَغُوا رِسَالَاتِ رَبِّهِمْ In this section or in this ayah, where it mentions أَنْ قَدْ أَبْلَغُوا that they have conveyed the purpose here, the shahid here, why is Imam al-Bukhari mentioning this here? It's all around the topic of the actions of the servants. Remember, we began this whole topic a few lessons ago, a few hadith back, when it was talking about recitation. Your recitation of the Qur'an, is it created, is it not? Your voice and your vocal cords are created, but the words that you're reading, they are the Qur'an, they are not created. From that, there have been different examples. Al-Imam al-Bukhari has given highlighting the actions of the servants. Here it is the action of the prophets and messengers that they conveyed the message ablahu they conveyed that message risalati rabbihim and so shaykh al-hamin says qawluhu ablahu risalati rabbihim al-iblah fi'l al-abd that they were conveyed of the messages from Allah the revelations from Allah fi'l al-muballigh so the one who conveys it, that is his action. 
so the point here is the same as what went by before that it is affirming our actions just like in the recitation of the Quran our voice our vocal cords that is our action but the statements of Allah the recited words they are the Quran the speech of Allah so you don't say that is created all of these examples here they are all in reference to that point about the actions of the servants in the next example regarding Ka'ab ibn Malik where it mentions وَسَيَرَ اللَّهُ عَمَلَكُمْ وَرَسُولُهُ سَيَرَ اللَّهُ عَمَلَكُمْ Allah will see your actions Allah will see your actions وَقُلِ اعْمَلُوا فَسَيَرَ اللَّهُ عَمَلَكُمْ وَرَسُولُهُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ لَا يَسْتَخِفَنَّكَ أَحَدْ وَمِنَ الْعَمَلْ قِرَاءَةُ الْقُرْآنِ So again it is the affirmation of the actions of the servant. This also relates back to something we studied before so you can connect the topics. When we talk about the actions of the servant relates back to the topic of Iman, yeah, but in the Qadr, how? That Allah created all of the actions in that part and also in the part regarding the Mashiatullah that Allah gave us choice in the actions that we do who can explain the question today then regarding our actions if somebody says to you then if somebody says that if Allah has decreed everything and is that true Allah has decreed everything absolutely and all of it was written down in the preserved tablet 50,000 years before the creation of the heavens and the earth. True? True. Then if I do something wrong, it was obviously in the decree that I was going to do that thing wrong. True? Because if it wasn't in the decree, you wouldn't have done that wrong thing. Meaning somebody yesterday drunk alcohol. Somebody yesterday, for example, drunk alcohol. Today you pull him up on it and he says, well, I admit. He says he admits it. He drank alcohol yesterday, but then he tells you, but it was in the decree. 50,000 years before the creation of the heavens and the earth, it was decreed that yesterday, yesterday 15th November, that he was going to drink alcohol. Was it decreed or not, upon the example? It was. So why is it his fault? Because he made himself do it. He made himself do it? So what do you mean? It was in the decree though. Was it in the decree that on that day he was going to drink alcohol? It was. So why is it his fault? 
You can stop yourself. What do you mean? So you're going to go against the decree? You have a choice? Anybody else? If he says, why is it his fault? He did it. Admits it. But he says, look, it was in the decree, obviously, I was going to do it. If it wasn't in the decree, I wouldn't have done it yesterday. Why are you blaming me for something that was obviously in the decree that it was going to happen? So remember, with the actions that we do, the actions that we do, all of this affirming our actions, the actions that we do, we have a choice in them. Allah gave us two things. They mentioned the scholars in relation to this action and choice. That Allah gave us two things. With the combination of those two things, we have our choice in actions. Allah gave us irada. He gave us that intention that you can intend and choose what you want to do. That is one thing. And the second was the ability. When you have an intention and you have the ability, it means you can now do an action upon your choice. So you decide that you are going to turn over the page of the book. You have made the irada, the intention to turn over the page in the book. You have the ability to do it. You can do it. You got the ability. With the combination of your intention and the ability, you can now turn over the page. Allah has given you the ability to have that intention and decision-making process and then the actual ability to carry out those decisions. If you only have one of the two, then it doesn't quite work. Somebody has ability, physically, but they have no mind. It may be the case, the one who is majnoon, etc., he doesn't, he doesn't know what he's doing, how he's doing it, so he may have ability, physically he can do things, but mentally he doesn't understand what, how, where. So then he's not held accountable, the pen is lifted upon him. On the other side, a person may have intent, but, for example, he's paralyzed, and he's unable to do anything. He wants to turn over the page, but he doesn't have the physical ability to do it. So the combination of the, both, the combination of both of those things, gives us our choice in what we do. You have an intent. So that person obviously made an intention to drink alcohol that day. He had the ability to go out to the shop, buy the alcohol, bring it back. He had the ability to do all of that. Had the ability to take off the top. Had the ability to lift up the bottle and do that action. He intended it and he physically carried it out. But then, that's how we have our choice. He made the intention, he physically carried it out. Why is it still his fault though? If he says, but obviously it was in the decree, I was going to do that yesterday. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have done it. Yes, it was in the decree that you were going to drink alcohol yesterday. 
But before you actually did it, did you know that it was in the decree you were going to drink alcohol that day? Did he know that or not before he actually drank it? He didn't know that. He can't say that he did. Maybe at the moment he was going to do it, an airplane crashes onto his house. Doesn't drink it. Has a heart attack and dies before he manages to He doesn't know. He doesn't know whether he is going to drink that bottle yet or not. Whether it's decreed the alcohol will go down him or not yet. Until he makes that intention and physically with his ability carries it out and does it. Now he knows obviously today it was decreed that he was going to drink alcohol. But only after he chose to do so and physically carried it out. Only after. Beforehand he didn't know. And that's why a person is accountable for what he does. You can't sit there and say, well, if such and such has led an evil life, then obviously that's how Allah decreed it for him. Was his life decreed like that, that he was going to do these things? Yes, it was. But at the moments in his life when he was doing all of those evil things, who was choosing to do it? Himself, he had the ability. A person now, time for prayer comes, he decides to get up and pray, or he decides to stay sitting down. Does Allah already know what that person's going to do? Tomorrow at Fajr now. Tomorrow morning at Fajr. A person now, is he going to get up and pray, or is he not going to pray? Tomorrow morning, that person, if Allah gives him life, is going to decide in the morning. That person is going to decide whether he gets up out of bed, or turns off the clock, snooze this, that, the other, and stays asleep. That individual is going to decide tomorrow morning what he does. He's going to physically carry out the action one or the other. Get up or pull the duvet over. Before he makes his decision or does what he's going to do in the morning, does Allah already know what he's going to do? Allah already knows whether he is going to get up or whether he's going to pull the duvet over and stay asleep. That's already known to Allah. That's why it's already in the in the decree it's already in the decree what he's going to do tomorrow he doesn't know until he actually does it until in the morning he actually puts it on snooze gets rid of it turns it off the alarm puts his duvet on he knows mentally he's aware of what's going on he's just thinking forget it a few more minutes this that the other at that moment he's making the choice not to get up and then maybe he falls asleep and he doesn't get up so that was already known to Allah what he was going to do. That's why it's already in the decree. But at the moment it happened, he made the choice. So everything we do, we do it upon the choice that we make. It's just that Allah already knows all of the choices we're going to make in our lives. So you can't say we are compelled by the decree. That would mean we don't have a choice. You can't say we are independent of the decree. That would mean that you're doing things that is not written in the decree. Rather we say what? You are not compelled by the decree. Neither are you independent of the decree. Rather... Rather... وَمَا تَشَاءُونَ إِلَّا أَنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهُ رَبُّ الْعَالَمِينَ 
You do not will something, choose to do something, except that Allah already has. Meaning Allah already knows what you're going to choose, it's already in the decree, but then you are going to, at that moment, choose. That's why you're accountable upon your deeds on the Day of Judgment. The people of innovation didn't understand that. Some of them said the Jabariya, but we're compelled. If it's written in the decree, it's written. We can't do anything about it. But that would mean that the person who goes to paradise has gone there for no reason. Why is he gone if he was just compelled to do righteousness? And the person who goes to hellfire, why is he gone to hellfire? He was compelled to do evil. That would not be justice. So we have the choice in our actions. And all of these narrations here that we're doing now are affirming our actions, the actions that are created. Also here, ذَلِكَ kitab. For example, at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, Alif Lam Mim, ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ هُدًا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ That, literally, as we learn it in the translations when learning Arabic, اسم الإشارة للبعيد That is the book that there is no doubt within. Guidance for all of the pious. Firstly, why does Allah say that is the book when when you are reading it, obviously it is right there in front of you. When you've got the Mus'haf and you're reading now, Alif Lamin Valikal Kitabu, that is the book. You've got the Mus'haf right there in front of you. It should be this is the book right now that you're reading in front of you. Why is it that is the book when it's here? You've got it. This is a one for memory lane. We did the tafsir of Surah Al-Baqarah 2011. Here, in this masjid, the opening sections of Surah Al-Baqarah, they were in durus min al-Qur'an al-Kareem of Shaykh al-Fawzan that we did in those days. So why does Allah say, ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ That is the book. When mankind has been given the book, it's here. Yeah. This is the book. Why that? Because in Arabic, that indicates something far away. The Quran isn't far away. It's right here. We've got it. That a rule in Arabic? Or you just made it up? Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Anything else? They say here the Ismul Ishara it indicates Ta'zim. That is the book in referring to it as that when actually it's this it indicates greatness of an affair. That is something uh, uh, which can occur in the Arabic language with the Ismul Ishara. So using Ismul Ishara, that, Valika, it's for Ta'zim. That is the book. When in reality it's here, you've got it. So, Valika al Kitabu, what does the word al Kitab mean? I didn't mean that actually. I meant, what does it mean? Why, why, 
Al-Kitab, what, what's the, the definition of Kitab, the root word of Kitab? What does Kitab mean, mean? Quran. Quran here, of course, yeah. Something that is written. Something collected, gathered. Where have you learned that from? Huh? Oh, no, no, the next part, Al-Kitab. You're right, Al-Kitab in Arabic means something which is gathered. A book, you gather within it chapters. You gather within it knowledge. A book is something which is gathered together. That's what the word Kitab means in Arabic. Something put together, something combined, something joined up. That's the word Kitab. That there is no doubt whatsoever. The lamb here is lamb. What type of lamb is it? For those who have done Medina Book 3, obviously you will know. What do you call it in Arabic? That it is the absolute negation. There is no doubt whatsoever. It is a guidance for the pious. Is it not a guidance for those who are not pious? Guidance for the pious. What about the ones who are not pious? Is it not guidance for them? Is the Quran not guidance for all of mankind? But here it says guidance for the pious. The meaning here is it is guidance for the pious. Obviously we know the Quran is guidance for pious, non-pious. It is guidance for all of mankind. But the pious are the ones who actually benefit from that guidance. Guidance for the pious, i.e. they are the ones who benefit from this guidance that is in this book. As for the ones who don't care, who are negligent, who do not follow the Quran, do not read it, do not have anything to do with it, they've not benefited from the guidance in the Quran. So it is a guidance for the believers, meaning that it is guidance uh, that it is benefit for those pious uh, Sheikh Rafimin gives some extra explanation here as well for Thalika and he mentions because Al-Ishara ila uluwi makanihi fahuwa li uluwi makanihi ka'annahu ba'id ثُمَّ إِنَّ مِنْ عَادَةِ الْعَرَبِ أَنَّ الْإِشَارَةَ بِالْبَعِيدِ تُفِيدُ تَعْظِيمَ الْمُشَارِ إِلَيْهِ That we mentioned. But the other point that it indicates the highness of the Qur'an. Because ذَلِكَ indicates something far. So it is like saying that is the Qur'an, i.e. lofty and high. And also the greatness of it. 
Then, um, then we can move on. All of these examples in this chapter, they are the same point, the actions of the servant. We'll move on to the next hadith. Begin from that one. قال حدثنا الفضل بن يعقوب قال حدثنا عبد الله ابن جعفر الرقي الرقي قال حدثنا المعتمر بن سليمان قال حدثنا سعيد بن عبيد الله الثقفي قال حدثنا بكر بن عبد الله المزني وزياد بن جبير بن حية عن جبير بن حية قال المغيرة أخبرنا نبينا صلى الله عليه وسلم عن رسالة ربنا أنه من قتل منا صار إلى الجنة The whomsoever is killed from us then he goes to paradise But the point of this narration is In the chain of narration They say that our prophet told us From the revelation from our Lord from that risalah from our Lord meaning the Prophet's conveyance of it to us is his action that is the action of the Prophets and the messengers that they relate that revelation to us all the extras we're going to miss all the extras will miss only the shawahid for now for these sections قال الإمام البخاري قال حدثنا محمد بن يوسف قال حدثنا سفيان عن إسماعيل عن شعبي عن مسروق عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت من حدثك أن محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم كتم شيئا وقال محمد حدثنا أبو عامر العقادي قال حدثنا شعبة عن إسماعيل بن أبي خالد عن شعبي عن مسروق عن عائشة قالت من حدثك أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كتم شيئا من الوحي فلا تصدقه إن الله تعالى يقول يا أيها الرسول بلغ ما أنزل إليك من ربك وإن لم تفعل فما بلغت رسالته The narration it highlights that Aisha رضي الله عنها said Whomsoever tells you that Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم concealed anything and then in the second part, concealed anything from the revelation, then do not believe him. Whomsoever tells you that the Prophet ﷺ concealed anything from the revelation, then do not believe him. For indeed Allah has said, O Messenger, convey what has been revealed to you from your Lord. And if you do not, If you don't, then you have not conveyed his message. So again, the conveyance of the message is the point which is the action of the Prophet ﷺ. Then also, قال حدثنا قتيبة بن سعيد قال حدثنا جرير عن العمش عن أبي ويل عن عمر بن شرحبيل قال قال عبد الله قال رجل يا رسول الله أي الذنب أكبر A man said to the Prophet ﷺ O Messenger of Allah which sin is the greatest عند الله with Allah قال أن تدعو لله ندا وهو خلقك the man said O messenger of Allah what is the greatest sin with Allah 
The Prophet ﷺ told him that you associate or that you call upon a partner, an equal alongside Allah, whilst it is Allah who created you, that you call upon another alongside Allah, even though it's only Allah who created you. What is the point of that there in terms of Tawheed? The man asks the Prophet ﷺ, what is the greatest sin with Allah? The Prophet ﷺ tells him that you call upon another alongside Allah when it's only Allah who created you. What could you pick out from that as a benefit? We've talked about it many times before, the association between the Tawheed of Rububiyyah, the Lordship of Allah, that is the Creator, the Provider, the Sustainer, the one who gives life and death and controls the universe, all of those actions are His alone. And then Al-Uluhiyyah, that He is the one alone to be worshipped. He alone we direct all of our worship to. Here the Prophet says the worst sin, the greatest sin is that you call upon others, that is our action of worshipping, calling upon others, whilst it is only Allah, not any of the others, who created you. The Rububiyyah. That it's only Allah who created you and provided for you and sustained you and gave you life and death and controls everything and all the blessings, everything only from Allah. So how can you be worshipping someone else that does not give you any of those things? That's the point of the connection. So the Mushrikun, they used to believe Allah is the creator. They used to believe Allah is the provider. They used to believe Allah created the heavens and the earth. They believed Allah is the one who gives life and death. Nobody else, not their deities, not their statues. But despite believing only Allah does all of those things, they still used to go and worship their idols and statues, even though they accepted that their idols and statues didn't give them life, didn't create them, didn't create the universe, don't control the universe, they still went to worship them. So the evidence that was used against them was, if you accept that only Allah is the creator, only Allah gave you life and will give you death, only Allah created all of this universe and controls it, only Allah provides for you, then how can you possibly be worshipping something else when you know that it does not do any of those things for you? Surely the only one deserving of worship is the one who provided all of those things for you, the Rububiyyah. Just as Ibn Kathir said, bonus point if you can link this one just like that. Ibn Kathir said a lot of things. But what did he say here? What did he say? Good thing I didn't name any prize yet. Al-Khaliq lihaadhi al-Ashya' huwa al-Mustahiq lil-Ibadah The one who created all of these things, he alone is the one deserving of worship. How can you say that the statue or the rock or whatever deserves worship when you know and you accept it didn't create you, it didn't create the universe, it doesn't provide for you, and how can you worship it? So this is the connection between that Rububiyyah and that Uluhiyyah. 
So then when the man was told that, he then says to the Prophet, قال, Then which sin is the worst after that? قال, that you kill your child for fear that he will eat with you, meaning for fear of poverty. And they used to kill their children at the time of Jahiliyyah for this reason and for other reasons too. They would kill in particular their daughters, their girls. The Mushrikun would kill their girls. Just like it's mentioned, if they had a child and it was a girl, their faces would drop in grief and sorrow. That it's a girl that's been born, a daughter, not a son. And so they would go and kill their own daughters in the times of ignorance before the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And not only kill them as well, it's mentioned, وَإِذَا الْمَوْؤُودَةُ سُئِلَتْ بِأَيِّ ذَنْبٍ قُتِلَتْ الْمَوْؤُودَةُ The girl that was killed. If those girls are asked, for what sin were you killed? What did you do to deserve to be killed? And that is going to be asked in front of the ones who killed them as a rebuke upon them. They will be asked, what did you do to be killed? And the killer is there knowing they did nothing. And it was him, purely. But what they used to do from their despising of daughters and wanting sons, if they had a daughter in those days before the Prophet some of them would keep them, some of them would allow it to pass and their daughter would go up and live. They didn't kill every single girl, of course. So some of them allowed them to live and they lived a life of shame that we have daughters, we don't have sons. Some of them would bear it and they would live. They would live and allow their daughters to live. Others, they couldn't bear it. It was shame for them in those days. This is what their society was in pre-ignorance. In those days of pre-Islam, shame for them. Some of them couldn't take it. But what is amazing is the manner, the level of the jihad, the level of what they were in before Islam came. Now they wouldn't just kill their daughters then if they couldn't handle it. It's mentioned how some of them would allow their daughters to live for a few years until they got to the age of four, five, six. The age, the scholars they mentioned, that age when a daughter is cute and pretty, four years, five years, six years old. That is when your daughter is that cute and pretty age and they would dress her up nicely with the nice clothes for the girl for that age, make her look nice, do her hair nice. And then they would say to her, let's go out and play. The father would say to her, let's go out and play. Take her to the woods where he's already dug up a grave and then throw her in and bury her alive. This is what they used to do in the times before Islam. This is what Islam came and eradicated to that level, to that level of ignorance. So here it mentions that you kill your children fearing poverty that they will eat alongside you and you'll not be able to provide for them. 
So then the man says after that, now two things have been told to him so far. The greatest sin is calling upon others alongside Allah, and you know Allah created you only. The second one was killing your children, children generally. And then قال, then the man says, ثم أيو, then which one? قال, أن تزاني حليلة جاركة, that you fornicate with your neighbor's uh, wife, that you fornicate with your neighbor. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed what affirms that. وَالَّذِينَ لَا يَدْعُونَ مَعَ اللَّهِ إِلَهًا آخَرٍ Those who do not call upon other deities alongside Allah. وَلَا يَقْتُلُونَ النَّفْسَ الَّتِي حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ And they do not kill a soul except that which Allah has decreed uh, uh, injustice which is allowed Islamically. Otherwise, they do not kill a soul uh, incorrectly and upon haram that which Allah has made forbidden and they do not fornicate this ayah has mentioned the three things that the Prophet highlighted as prohibitions the committing of shirk the killing of the children or the killing of a soul that is haram for you to kill and the fornication هذا كله كما ذكرنا تأكيد لأن أفعال الإنسان مخلوقة all of those actions calling upon another besides Allah, killing your children, uh, fornicating, they are all actions of the servant. They are all actions of the person. Then after that, in fact, then after that begins the new chapter. After that begins the new chapter. So the new chapter will begin the next time inshallah ta'ala but here now these last few ahadith and these last few sessions it's all been around the issue of the actions of the servants and that topic is detailed more in books of aqidah and how Allah creates the actions of the people but that we have been given the choice and we've been given the ability so all of these chapters here have spoken about that beginning from the topic in particular about the recitation of the Qur'an. So who's going to summarize to us the last six or seven lectures we've done? Maybe more, maybe eight or nine or ten lectures we've done. Any volunteers? You can hear the aeroplane silence. So it's important, like we said, you have to keep revising as you go along. You have to keep checking your previous chapters because otherwise it can get to the level where you could go back now and mention a hadith and you'll say, I've never heard of that hadith. But you have. You were sat in the class when you heard it. But it can get to the level where you forget that much that you now mention a hadith from earlier on in the book and you say, I don't remember that hadith. Because you not revised it, you didn't look over it. 
And that's why the Salaf they used to say, Afatul Ilm Al-Nisyan. The real big problem when it comes to knowledge, seeking knowledge is what? What is the real big problem when it comes to seeking knowledge? Not even that you don't attend the classes, mashallah, good attendance. Not even that you don't particularly pay attention. Most people pay attention, inshallah. So what is the real calamity when it comes to knowledge, they used to say? Forgetfulness. The Salaf used to say, The real calamity when it comes to knowledge is forgetfulness. That a person after having sought knowledge, forgets that knowledge. That's why they say the highest level of knowledge isn't just understanding what you're learning, but it's understanding what you're learning and also implementing, of course, that is the fruits of it, but alongside it, memorize. The highest level of knowledge is to understand the knowledge you're learning, obviously, but on top of that, memorize it. A person who memorizes and understands is superior to a person who just understands. Because a person might come along and say, it's not about the memorization, it's about understanding everything. True. It is about understanding everything. But then the other person could reply, I've understood it all, and I've memorized it all. That is better. Because in that way, as the Shaykh al said, it will stay with you for longer. Imagine now somebody has memorized the three fundamental principles. Memorized the three fundamental principles. In 40 years from now, if Allah decrees life for you, somebody asks you about a particular point from the three fundamental principles. If you never memorized the text, that particular point he's asking about, the explanation of it, over time, you may forget. And it happens. It does happen. But over time, you forget something which you thought you absolutely had fully understood at the time. And you may well have. You may well have understood something properly and fully at the time. But then later on, as years go by, slowly that issue now, you don't remember it as well. And it occurs when studying different opinions of fiqh, for example, then there used to be different topics and issues at the time memorized. Absolutely this issue and the, this madhab said this and that and everything. But after years go by, then you forget which madhab said what. And what was the opinion? So the one who understands everything properly is excellent, but over time that can degrade. Whereas if you memorize it as well, the Shaykh said what will happen is even if you forget the understanding or the explanation of something, in 40 years time, if you have it memorized, you can go back to your memorization of that section and you read out that section to yourself and then that slowly fills in the explanation around it. That you learn your explanations around the memorized texts. So even if you forget the explanation, when you remember that text again, you read the text again, it comes back to you. 
But if you have nothing memorized and you lose the understanding of it, then what is there going to be to bring back that understanding to you? You have no markers to go back to build that understanding out from again. So it's important to memorize. This is a big book, no doubt. And it's not expected to memorize all of the hadith. But from the future books, inshallah ta'ala, the plan is to do some of the smaller books after we finish this now. There's not long left now to finish this. Then inshallah ta'ala, you should start preparing yourselves. Prepare yourselves for the next book, which will be maybe 5% of the size of this book. Small books we're going to do, simple books that explain the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, explain the basic principles of our religion, the basic principles of Islam. Small books that will barely take a few weeks at a time. Those books can be memorized and should be memorized. So we'll say that now, to get yourself into that mentality for a few weeks down the line, Insha'Allah, when those new smaller books begin after this one, so that you can try to memorize, and you can try to keep up. All you have to do is memorize that small section per week. As long as you even do that as a minimum, by the time you finish, it means you'll have finished memorizing the book. As long as you memorize that section, we're going to do every week. So get yourself into that habit. Get yourself into the habit of memorizing too as much as you can. The more you do, the more it opens up your brain, opens up your mind. The more you memorize, the quicker your ability becomes and the easier it is to memorize. But when you do it at first, it can be difficult. The first time when you start memorizing and it takes forever to memorize two lines or three lines. And of course, no doubt, Arabic helps. So when you're memorizing something you don't understand, you should get the translation so that you have a general understanding at least of what it is those words that you're memorizing that will help you with that ability to memorize as well. The Shanaqitah, known for their memorization, one of the things that they used to mention they do, when they memorize a hadith, for example, they would be looking in one direction, they would be looking forward, they'd be sitting facing the wall, for example. They're sitting in a square room, and they are facing the wall, and they repeat that hadith a hundred times. لَا يُؤْمِنُ أَحَدُكُمْ حَتَّى يُحِبَّ لِأَخِيهِ مَا يُحِبُّ لِنَفْسِهِ Repeat it a hundred times. Then they say, they would do what? Turn 90 degrees to face the other wall in the room. Now that wall a hundred times, you've done it now. This way and repeat the hadith hundred times, one hundred times. Then after that, change the wall, go to the back wall now. Hundred times. Change it, go to the last wall that's left in the room. A hundred times. By the time you come back to where you were looking at originally, you've now repeated that hadith four hundred times. Who here memorizes a hadith like that? Probably nobody. And that's why you forget a lot. Imagine now somebody memorizes in that style. Because the problem is, this is the problem. After 20 or 30 times or 50 or 60 times when you repeat it, you think, MashaAllah, you're half of. Half of. Half of a dunya. You think, that's it, I got it. It's there. Close the book, I can read it.
50 times I'm done what's the other need for the 350 now but that is the mistake it's not ingrained in your head yet when you repeat it to that level then you'll see the difference you go home now and memorize a brand new hadith that you don't know and memorize it like that 400 times repeat it then the next day come back and repeat it 400 times you imagine now Al-Fatiha if somebody came woke you up in the middle of the night middle of your sleep woke you up and then said to you straight away recite Al-Fatiha 60 seconds after waking you up could you do it? absolutely doesn't matter if you be woken up in the middle of the night doesn't matter where you are doesn't matter if you've been on some long haul flight 24 hours long at the end of it you can still recite your fatiha you're not gonna forget fatiha you're not gonna forget alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen and then what the next ayah is why does that not happen because you are repeating it how many times every day 17 times if you wear all the obligatory and then on top of that all the supererogatory optional you're repeating fatiha on a daily basis daily basis you're repeating al-fatiha imagine now a hadith imagine the same thing you get a hadith now or 40 hadith al-imam al-nawawi imagine every night before bed for half an hour you practiced all 40 you did that every night every night for a year two years three years now anytime anybody picks up any hadith there and then it will be in your head because of that repetition and how it's ingrained within you it's there fixed in fixed in because of that constant repetition there's a hafiz I used to know in the University of Medina hafiz of the Quran young boy he was 18 years old hafiz of the Quran and he used to obviously revise his Quran on a regular basis the, the actual hafiz here sometimes you have people they say they're hafiz and that they finished when they were this many years old but then you ask them some surah I need to revise if you need to revise and you don't know it at all then you're not hafiz that isn't really what a hafiz is yes you've got the Quran but it's a very you know when ice is very thin and it breaks very easily you're thin your memorization is thin if you only have it like that hafiz of the Quran okay go on and read surah this or surah that from the middle of it give you the first ayah you can't okay what about this surah then I'll give you the ayah start from there you can't because you haven't revised yet so your memorization is very thin yet that isn't really hafiz 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 in the, the, the definitions of the salaf definitions of the scholars of hadith a hafiz they used to say is somebody who can narrate to you whatever they've memorized instantly at any time so somebody comes along now and says they are hafiz of the quran or they are hafiz of al-bukhari so in the middle of nowhere out of the blue you say okay kitab al-tawheed the hadith about x y and z narrate it they can narrate it okay he's hafiz but if you can't, you have to say, I have to revise, I have to check over it, I need to just practice it yet. Then you're a very thin-layered hafiz yet. But the point is, there was this hafiz, young, 18 years old approximately, 
and he used to revise his Quran on a regular basis. How regularly? And this is what a Hafiz should do. He used to finish revising the Quran once every six days. Every day he used to revise how many juz? Five juz a day, which means in six days, 30 juz. Every six days he would have revised the full Quran. He used to do three after Fajr every morning, two after Isha in the evening. Five Jews practiced for the day. Anywhere stuck, have a look, revise it, practice it. Five practiced. Next day, the next five practice. Next day, the next five practice. Anywhere you get stuck, check, practice, practice. In six days, he's practiced the whole Quran. On the seventh day, he starts again from the beginning. Like that, he's memorized the Quran and he's practicing it every six days, the full Quran. This is how you should practice what you memorize. You memorize the 40 hadith. Shouldn't be that you finish the last hadith and alhamdulillah done now. You don't look at it for a year. When you come back to it, you're no longer half of it. You are no longer half of it. You memorize the four fundamental principles. You don't look at it for six months, two years. You come back to it. You're not half of it anymore. Don't say I'm half it. I've done it. You're not anymore. That's the reality. The only way you can remain half of is you have to keep revising and recapping those things. So this is something all important we need to pay attention to if we want to improve our levels of knowledge, want to improve our abilities, our understanding, because knowledge is to remove ignorance from ourselves and to remove ignorance from others. You want to help your families, your parents, your, your uh, children, your uncles, aunties, whatever. How are you going to do that if you don't have the knowledge? You can't go to one of your relatives now and say Salafiyah is the right way and this is the correct way and Tawheed and they say, okay, give me some proofs then and you don't know nothing. You don't know any proofs or any ayat or anything or any hadith. Then you're stuck and your da'wah isn't going to be as productive. So focus on this, uh, the topic of seriousness when it comes to studying, the topic of being earnest upon studying, Striving hard with studying. This is what the Salaf they used to do. That's why it's mentioned about some of the young Salaf. How much knowledge they had. Some of the young Salaf. How they would be taken into the gatherings of the elders like Ibn Abbas. Ibn Abbas was young. He was young when the older companions, senior companions were there. The senior companions at the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab used to have their gatherings. Umar ibn al-Khattab was older and senior at the time. Ibn Abbas was young. Umar ibn al-Khattab used to have the gatherings, the meetings with the other senior companions. And he used to let the young, at the time, the young Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, into those gatherings. So the other senior companions, they said, if he is coming, Ibn Abbas, you're allowing him in, and he's at the same age as our sons, then we should maybe bring them too, let them come into these gatherings, into these sittings and meetings. But then Umar ibn Khattab wanted to show them Ibn Abbas is being let in because of his level of knowledge. So then he asked a question to them all, which was, the tafsir of Surah Al-Nasr. What is the tafsir of it? And so they mentioned regarding the tafsir and the conquering of Mecca and the defeat of the kuffar, etc. But then when it came to Ibn Abbas, he said the tafsir of this is 
an indication upon the death of the Prophet and Umar ibn Khattab said, that's the tafsir that I know of it. So then it showed to all of the companions, this young man, Ibn Abbas was being allowed in at the time because of his superiority in knowledge. Habr al-Ummah, as he was known as the, the, uh, uh, the sea of knowledge or the one with vast knowledge, the scholar of this Ummah. That is what we need to strive to be upon with that knowledge. This knowledge isn't something that you just come as a routine. Don't make this Saturday night gathering a routine. Saturday night we're going to go to the mosque, we're going to listen and go home again. If, if that's all it is, just a routine, you come as a routine, then in 10 years from now you can carry on coming and in 10 years from now you won't have really benefited much knowledge. Because if you just come as a routine like that, come, sit, listen, go again, all you're going to get is a few bits and bobs of general knowledge. You'll remember one benefit there, one benefit there, and that's it. But that isn't what you want to do. You're sitting here, you're attending anyway, you may as well make the best of it. Focus on it and make the best of it. Not to make it like the guests, as I always say. The scholars, one of them used to mention, when some people come to classes, they come like guests. What is a guest? Somebody who isn't supposed to do anything. A guest, when he comes to your house, he's supposed to just relax. So the Sheikh used to say, that some people, they come to class like a guest. They just come to relax. But others, they come to class like a student. They come with their books and they come with their pens and they come with their pads to learn. Remember, what you're learning here is your religion. This is what you are going to be accountable upon on the Day of Judgment. This, what you learn now, what you practice in your life, that is what will determine what your actions are and what your accountability is in the afterlife. So do not ever belittle knowledge or think it's not a big deal. People, they give focus to other things to such a degree. But when it comes to knowledge, maybe it's not as much. So again, we need to revitalize. Need to freshen up those minds and be focused every week and come with that focus to the class every week. Knowing we're going to properly study, learn, make notes, take benefits, remember them, learn them, memorize them, pass them on to our children, our families. That is what you want to be doing from these gatherings of knowledge, the gatherings that are blessed, barakah in them. The best way that a servant can spend his time in seeking knowledge of his religion. So inshallah ta'ala we'll conclude upon that. We'll continue with it next week after the Isha prayer. InshaAllah ta'ala, wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.